Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 86 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Devil's Den, Arkansas UFO encounter. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1977, two Air Force medics drove to a state park in Arkansas for a camping trip. But something frightening happened while they were there. At first, they just saw lights in the sky, but then something alarming happened. They emerged from the encounter terrified and suffering dramatic physical symptoms. When they got back to their Air Force base, things only got more mysterious. Years later, one of the servicemen found out what he thinks is proof that this was an extraterrestrial encounter, and he thinks our government knows more than it's telling. Was this an authentic UFO encounter? What might the aliens' intentions be, and what does the government know? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, we always start by noting if one of us has a personal connection to a mystery, so what's your connection to this one? I grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, up in the Ozark Mountains, which means I am an official Ozark Mountain hillbilly, something I take pride in. Uh, Devil's Den is a state park in the Ozarks, and it's located just over 30 minutes from the house where I grew up. So I've been to Devil's Den many times. Uh, my parents took me there when I was a kid. I went there in high school and college with my friends, and it was a popular place to uh, go hiking and camping and, you know, have a bonfire and things like that. So when uh, Terry Loveless published his UFO book, Incident at Devil's Den, I immediately took note because I'd been to the places where the incident allegedly took place. Yeah, let's let's give a sense of the place of Devil's I looked at online before we started recording the show and I was looking at pictures. It looks beautiful. What is Devil's Den like? It's in a part of the Ozarks called the Boston Mountains, and the area is gorgeous. Uh, the mountains are covered with trees, and most of the year they are vivid green. But in the fall, the leaves turn brilliant red, orange, and yellow. The area gets some snow in the winter, but not a lot, except for that ice storm back in the 1970s that knocked out everyone's power for two weeks. Devil's Den State Park is a 2,500-acre plot of land, meaning it's about four square miles, and it's near the town of West Fork. It's on a geological feature known as a dissected plateau. That's a plateau that has been heavily eroded by water action, so you get sharp drop-offs and bluffs. Uh, this particular plateau is made of sedimentary rock, like sandstone, that was laid down 300 million years ago in the Pennsylvanian epoch. Back then, this part of Arkansas was just south of the equator in mm -hmm. a shallow sea. And that was obvious to us as kids, because all you had to do was walk out on the red dirt road where we lived. We lived out in the country, so it was an unpaved road. And you walk out on the red dirt road, and you'd find lots of fossils of marine life, like fossilized shells, fossilized sponges, things like that. Very common all over the place. Devil's Den is located in the Lee Creek Valley, which was eroded in a way that created lots of caves and bluffs and ravines and rock overhangs and crevices. There are like 60 crevice caves in the park. In other words, Lots of places to hide, <laughs> and so people hid in them. Back around 1859, outlaws would hide in them and then rob the Butterfield stagecoach line that was running through the area and that was linked to the Pony Express. During the Civil War, Confederate irregulars would hide out and then raid Union supply lines. During the Great Depression, the location was chosen for a state park, and in 1933, the Civilian Conservation Corps began building the Devil's Den Park facilities. Today, they're on the National Register of Historic Places because of the period architecture that is still there. The water in the park is provided by Lee Creek, which feeds into an artificial lake that the Civilian Conservation Corps built, Lake Devil. 
The park has lots of beautiful nature scenery. There are trails for hiking and mountain biking and horseback riding. There are cabins you can rent, hookups for mobile RVs, and of course, caves. My favorite cave is the Devil's Icebox, which is called that because the air that comes out of it is really cold. Uh, what happens is air enters the cave complex high up on the mountain, and then it gets cooled as it filters down through the mountain. So at ground level, if you go into the Devil's Icebox, it's really cold inside, kind of like the ninth circle of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so is why is the park called Devil's Den? Is there something to do with devils? Well, as Janet on The Good Place would say, unclear. In his book, Terry Lovelace says that he learned that the name was coined by local Native Americans who thought the place was cursed. That would make it an area like Skinwalker Ranch, which we talked about back in episode 36, which was so named because it was supposedly in the path of a supernatural skinwalker, a kind of malevolent supernatural entity. But... That's what he says. I've read other accounts that say that the name is due to the outlaws or devils that used to hole up in the caves and then conduct raids on the stagecoach line. OK, so let's let's meet the man who wrote Incident to Devil's Den. What can you tell us about Terry Lovelace? He's around 66 or 67 years old today, which means he was born around 1954. He's from St. Louis, Missouri. He's a retired attorney, and he served as a felony prosecutor and assistant attorney general in American Samoa and state attorney for the Vermont Board of Medical Practice. And when did he have his first reported encounter with extraterrestrials? Not entirely clear, but he thinks it may have been when he was uh, eight years old uh, in 1963. He started seeing what he thought at the time were sinister grinning monkeys. But in hindsight, he thinks they may have been gray aliens. Uh, he claims to have seen them in his bedroom at night and to have been fully awake at the time. So he says they weren't a dream. And without their without moving their grinning mouths, the monkeys would tell him, I guess, telepathically that everything was OK and then invite him to play with them. But he was afraid of them and didn't want to go. So he screamed loud enough to wake his mother and they vanished. These experiences stopped and several months went by. But then one Saturday afternoon, he was doing some archery practice, you know, with a bow and arrow when something else happened. He was getting, he was doing this archery practice and he saw a large silver disc floating about 50 feet above him in the sky. It didn't make any noise and it kind of wobbled a little bit. And he felt oddly compelled to put down his bow and arrow and lie down in the grass and just watch it for a while. He says that this encounter led to a new round of nightmares, this time involving a six foot tall praying mantis that was menacing him. And people who are familiar with UFO literature will know that the image of a large human-sized praying mantis is a common image that comes up in UFO abduction literature. He also claims to have seen this same silver UFO in 1966 when he was 11, when he saw it hovering over his lawn as he looked out of his second-story bedroom window. And this led to a new round of nightmares but apart from the incidents in 1963 and 1966, he didn't recall any other potential alien encounters until the next decade. And then what happened with him in the 1970s? Between 1973 and 1979, he served as an Air Force medic and first responder at Whiteman Air Force Base. That's in the state of Missouri. It's outside Kansas City, about 270 miles from Devil's Den. So it's about 270 miles north of where the main event is going to take place. At the time, he had a, a partner, a fellow medic and friend of his, who he refers to in the book as Tobias or Toby or Tobe. That's not his real name, but that's what he calls him for privacy purposes. In June of 1977, Toby proposed that the two of them go camping in Devil's Den. And Terry at first was hesitant because neither he nor Toby knew much about camping. They were city boys. Also, uh, he didn't think that their wives would let them go. But Toby won him over by pointing out that Terry was an amateur photographer. 
and going to Devil's Den would let him do a bunch of nature and wildlife photography. Also, Toby himself was an amateur astronomer, and he could get in some stargazing in an area that didn't have any light pollution in the night sky because it would be far away from city lights. And so they ended up going. And then what happened when they got to Devil's Den State Park? They decided that they didn't want to be assigned a camping spot next to other park visitors. They wanted something more remote. So they went up into an undeveloped area of the park to find a place to camp. In fact, they went up a utility trail that was marked no entry, Arkansas Department of Parks and Recreation. Uh, They ended up, you know, at the end of this trail, they ended up camping in a meadow that they found back in the woods on the top of a hill. And that night, they settled in and started doing some stargazing. Then Terry noticed that the forest was unusually quiet, that they weren't hearing crickets or frogs or anything like you'd expect to hear. And that's when they noticed something strange in the sky. Toby pointed to three bright stars in a triangle formation above the western horizon. Now, since Toby was an amateur astronomer, he was convinced these were not normal stars because he would have recognized them as being part of one of the familiar constellations. And he didn't. You know, he he is an astronomer, an amateur, albeit he knew the constellations. And so he knew these were not established, an established star formation. So they just watched them and they just stood there hovering in place for about 20 minutes. But then after that, they started moving. They rotated on an axis and the men realized they were part of a single object because their movement was coordinated like a single object rotating. They also started to ascend away from the horizon. And Terry doesn't point this out in his book, but that's another clear sign that these are not normal stars, because since the Earth rotates in the direction it does, stars, including the sun, fall toward the western horizon. That's why the sun sets in the west. And if these are moving away from the western horizon, if they're rising above the western horizon, that's a clear sign these are not normal stars. They also got bigger and brighter. And the men's conviction that it was a single solid object was strengthened when they noticed that it blocked out other stars as it passed by them in the sky. So there was like an opaque object that would block out the other stars. Eventually, the object came directly over the campsite and then stopped. The dark space between the lights blocked out most of the stars in the sky. The object began to descend, and the three lights that seemed to be on its edges illuminated the field brightly enough to cast shadows. Toby decided to signal the object with a flashlight, and the object, maybe in response to the flashlight, turned on a searchlight, which focused on their campfire. This was a light that descended from the middle of the triangular craft. Then the searchlight went out, and a thin blue laser-like beam of light started darting around their campsite. But then the craft went away, and they took their air mattresses and got in their tent and went to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> Not sure I would have slept. So so was that the end of their experience? No. Later that night, Terry woke up in a panic when there were bright lights flashing through the sides of the tent. Toby was on his knees inside the tent. He had opened the tent flap about two inches and was peering out at something in the meadow. I saw Toby was trembling like a man in the cold. I realized I was trembling, too. I reached for the flashlight and Toby roughly snatched it from my hand. He held his finger across his lips and whispered, Be quiet, they're still out there. I was shocked. In the flashes of light, I could see tracks down Toby's cheeks. He'd been crying. Squeezing next to Toby, I pulled back the canvas, and there it was. This wasn't a flying saucer at all. It was something else, something much bigger. This was something I'd never seen before and was unprepared for. It was so gigantic that it filled every inch of the meadow. It sat motionless in midair. I estimated it to be 30 feet off the meadow floor. Then it registered. Of course, this is the thing we watched last night. There were randomly dispersed square panels of light on each side. It reminded me of a five-story office building at night with offices lit here and there on every floor. Along the very top was a row of larger windows that slanted outward. They were all lit. I saw faint shadows and movement behind these larger panels. 
These larger panels stretched the entire length of the two sides of the triangle we could see. The points of light had dimmed and were flashing. They were changing colors from greens, yellows, and orange. We saw figures walking and milling around underneath this thing. My God, they were children! Maybe a dozen or more kids all about the same height. They were milling about in small groups of two or three. I whispered to Toby, What the hell are children doing here underneath this giant thing in the middle of the night? There was fear in Toby's voice when he answered, Those ain't little kids. Those are not human beings, Terry. They took you, too. They hurt us both. Terry, they hurt us. His voice faded into soft sobbing again. And suddenly, Terry thought he remembered some of what happened while he had, and, and Toby had been taken aboard the ship. He remembered there being a flash of light, and suddenly he was inside the ship. It had a huge interior, and he saw three flying saucers parked in it. He also saw about 50 to 60 other people, human beings, inside the ship. But he didn't have long to think about this new memory because a column of light was now again shining down from the center of the object onto the campsite, and he saw the little people who were wandering around enter the beam of light two or three at a time and disappear. Afterwards, the ship left, and the men drove back to Missouri in a panic. Oddly, I mean, right then in the night, they, they got in their car and left. <laughs> Oddly, they didn't talk to each other much, and they felt really bad, particular physically, particularly after the sun came up. Their eyes were incredibly sensitive to the sunlight, and Toby's eyes were almost swollen shut. They had body aches, and they itched all over. They were heavily sunburnt everywhere on their bodies, even under their clothes, and they were incredibly thirsty. Uh, they drank all the water and beer that they had, and then they stopped at a gas station where they got grape drink and orange soda, but their thirst was just insatiable. What happened when they got back to their Air Force base? Their wives were surprised to see them back so soon and to see what horrible shape they were in. Terry's wife, who was a nurse, took his temperature and said it was 104 and insisted on taking him to the base clinic. At the ensuing examination, they discovered that Terry's body was covered with tiny red welts. He says there were 124 of them. They also ran a Geiger counter, you know, a radiation detector, over Terry, and it reacted. So they had his wife go home and bag everything he brought back from the trip, presumably fearing it was contaminated with radioactive material. He then spent several days in the hospital on pain meds and an IV to help him recover from dehydration. And what was the reaction of the base authorities? Terry and Toby got into huge trouble. Hmm. In their hurry to get out of Devil's Den State Park, they'd left many of their belongings, including ones with their names on them. And the park rangers found their unauthorized campsite and reported it. The Air Force wanted to know what they were doing because the whole thing looked really suspicious. They were in an unauthorized area of the park that was not open to camping. They'd left a bunch of military stuff there, including military-grade insect repellent and other things that belonged to the Air Force, like blankets that they'd taken without authorization. Terry's explanation for why he went on the trip was because he wanted to take wildlife photos. But it turns out he'd forgotten his camera and didn't have any wildlife photos. And, of course, they were in really horrible shape when they got back. So, of course, the Air Force is interested in that. Two of their men are injured. The authorities wanted to know, among other things, whether the two of them had an illegal marijuana patch that they were tending up in the woods. And that would have been a huge crime back in 1977, and the men would have faced serious jail time. Terry was scared that they might have unwittingly camped near a marijuana patch because, you know, there were illegal marijuana growers in Arkansas and the authorities might then find the patch in the woods and blame Terry and Toby for it. They were both grilled by agents from the Office of Special Investigations who were very intimidating. They also forbade Terry and Toby to see or communicate with each other in any way, uh, you know, apparently to keep them from coordinating their stories to get out of this. 
the Air Force also arranged for Toby to be transferred. And in the end, after Terry learned about the transfer orders that were being cut, Terry disobeyed the order not to speak to Toby because he wanted to say goodbye to him. That got him in even more trouble, and he was put on a punitive work detail where he had to first paint a bunch of pieces of wood with white paint and satisfy his superior that they had been properly painted, you know, not a lot of runs or stuff like that. And then he had to sand all the paint off. (laughs) So clearly punitive make work. Terry also began to suspect that the military was up to something and wasn't revealing everything it knew. So how did Terry start to suspect that the military knew more than it was letting on? The OSI agents seemed obsessed with whether Terry had taken pictures of anything during the camping trip, and they thought he was hiding film. The lead agent thought that Terry was hiding film from him. Also, when Terry was discharged from the hospital, one of the doctors told him that the two of them were pretty sick when they got back to the base, and as a result, they'd given them some strong medication that could mess with their memory and cause them to have strange dreams. Even months later, they could be having strange dreams as a result of this medication. And the doctor said that if they didn't discuss their dreams with anyone, the dreams would go away faster. (laughs) That made Terry suspicious. He, He thought that the advice not to discuss your dreams with anyone suggested the Air Force knew that they had been abducted by aliens and wanted to keep it secret. They also sent Terry Holmes Terry home with some pills. And these were not standard issue pills. They were made by a compounding pharmacist. That's the kind of pharmacist who makes up special batches of medications that aren't commercially available, available in pill form. They also sent around a nurse every day to count his pills and make sure he was taking them. But Terry thought that they were interfering with his memory and making him absent-minded. So he surreptitiously started disposing of the pills, and his memory cleared up. Eventually, in an effort to get the OSI agents off his back, Terry volunteered to undergo hypnosis. So they sedated him and put him under. And what did he tell them under hypnosis? Basically, even though he was trying to hold stuff back, he told them virtually everything, including not only about the UFO encounter at Devil's Den, but also his childhood encounters. Under hypnosis, uh, Terry claimed to have seen human crewmen working aboard the UFO wearing tan flight suits with orange insignia ranks. And he claimed to have seen human or alien or alien-human hybrids growing in tanks, you know, like fish tanks. Hmm. Terry remembered the aliens doing typical painful alien medical things to him while he was on the ship. He also told them that he had been on their ships before, including on an even bigger ship that could never land because it was as big as a city. And so he had to be taxied up to it on a saucer. He said this big ship was over 300 miles in length, It was so large it had to stay on the far side of the moon to keep it from being seen. And while on it, Terry claims to have looked down and seen lighted cities on the far side of the moon where he was told aliens were doing some kind of mining operation. And who told him that? A woman on the ship who Terry says appeared to be an alien-human hybrid, you know, kind of human, but not exactly. And the woman also said she was an alien-human hybrid. And she said there were many other such hybrids with more being made every day. He also now remembered this woman had helped him when he was a child and was frightened by the aliens, which at the time he had perceived as monkey men. He was told that there were humans living on the moon and that they've been there for years. He also described the hierarchy of aliens, which had the tall praying mantis-like aliens at the top, which is very common in UFO literature. Then the greys are their workers or drones, and Terry thought they may have been robots, which is, again, a common theme in UFO literature. Then there are the alien-human hybrids, another common theme in the literature. And some who either were human or at least looked like they were purebred human. How did this hypnosis session end? 
Well, the Air Force hypnotist told him he would forget everything, which he didn't, and uh, brought him out. And is that how his story ends? No, uh, there's more. And really, there's more than we can go into on the show. Uh, You can read his book, Incident at Devil's Den, for the full story. I do want to cover an additional event, though, that occurred in 2012. Terry had been an avid jogger for some years in the past, and he'd noticed that after every run, he'd have a numb spot on his right leg for an hour or so. He would just get numb, and then the numbness would go away. Eventually, though, like a lot of people who were in on the jogging fad back in the day, he gave it up. Then, on October 23rd of 2012, he woke up with extreme pain in his right knee and could not walk. He went to a VA hospital, you know, being a veteran, went to the VA, uh, Veterans Administration for our non-American friends, and they did x-rays of his leg. They found the source of his pain. He was suffering from what's called a Baker cyst, which is a fluid collection behind the knee. And the good thing about the Baker cyst is he was told it'll resolve itself in in a few weeks if you just rest the leg. But the x-rays also revealed unusual objects in his right leg. One of these was above the knee, and it looked like a small square piece of metal. It was under where the numb spot would appear after his runs, and it also had what looked like a couple of little wires coming out of it. There was a second object below the knee in his calf and it looked like it was made out of bone. It was made of flat, round discs, arranged kind of like flower petals, and neither the object above the knee nor below the knee had a scar associated with it. So Terry then concluded that these were alien implants like the ones we discussed back in episode 80. And did he have those extracted and analyzed? Unfortunately, no, and there's more to that story which we'll cover after we look at the theories regarding the Devil's Den incident. Okay. And before we get to those theories, I do want to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make this show possible, uh, including uh, Caleb B., Aline G., Hiram G., Todd B., and Jared S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the incident? Uh, Let's start with some theories that Terry himself proposes. In contemplating why the military would be keeping what it knows about the aliens a secret, he says he thinks there are three possibilities. One is that our government and maybe other governments are letting the aliens pursue their agenda in abducting people in exchange for technology. Another is that the government is working with the aliens towards some kind of shared goal. And the third is that the government can't stop the aliens and is just trying to keep things quiet to avoid a panic. Any of those three possibilities are scary, but they all depend on the idea that the government and the military is aware of this. And to assess that, we need to assess the overall plausibility of Terry's account. When it comes to that, there are also basically three possibilities. One, everything or almost everything that he claims is true. Two, part of it is true, a substantial part of it, but also part of it is not a substantial part. And then finally, that basically none of it is true. All right. And then what can we say about the Devil's Den incident from the faith perspective? Well, despite the presence of the word devil in the name of the state park, not much. We've already covered the theological implications that would follow if it turned out that intelligent alien life exists. And you can go back and listen to episode 55 if you want to hear about that. We don't need to rehash it all here. All right. Then what can we say about the incident from the reason perspective? Let's start with the idea that everything Terry Loveless claims is true. What evidence could one use to support this idea? Well, one thing that you could appeal to is his reputation. Here's his biography from his website. Terry Lovelace served on active duty in the United States Air Force from 1973 to 1979. Trained as a medic and EMT, the bulk of his enlistment was spent as a first responder at the emergency room of Whiteman Air Force Base Hospital. 
After military service, he completed a bachelor's degree in psychology, cum laude, from Park University. He earned a Juris Doctor from Western Michigan and was admitted to the bar the same year. In addition to serving as a felony prosecutor, he was keenly interested in healthcare law. He is a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives and was certified as a healthcare risk manager. While an assistant attorney general for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa, he was general counsel for LBJ Tropical Medical Center. He finished his legal career as state's attorney for Vermont's Board of Medical Practice in 2012 and lives in Dallas with his wife of 45 years. So he seems to be a reputable guy. Another thing that will strike people who are familiar with contemporary UFO literature, and I've mentioned this, you know, alluded to this a couple times in the show already, is how well Terry's story matches with other accounts. It's got numerous elements in common with them. Beginning of alien abduction in childhood, strange apathy or otherwise inappropriate emotions during experiences, serial abduction of the same individual alien-induced amnesia, a hierarchy of insect-like aliens at the top and gray aliens who may be robotic as their workers, medical procedures being performed on humans, an alien-human hybrid program, cooperation of humans, including seemingly the military in the program. That's a phenomena that's sometimes called my labs or military abductions. And then, of course, alien implants. All of these are commonplaces in contemporary UFO literature, at least since the 80s or 90s. And some people, you know, might say, well, that's positive evidence. You know, his account agrees very well with other people's accounts. But it's not proof because anyone who's familiar with the UFO literature could make up the exact same scenario to lend credibility to his own story. If I were going to do an alien abduction hoax, I would make up a story that involved the same general set of elements to get people who already buy into that scenario to buy into my story in particular. So to really validate Terry's story, we need some form of independent evidence showing that he didn't simply make it all up. And does he have independent evidence like that? Based on his account, there are several types of evidence that could serve, and I'd love to investigate them. These include... His Air Force records, which should reveal the medical problems he experienced after the Devil's Den incident in June of 1977, the corresponding 1977 records dealing with the Office of Special Investigations agents, confirming testimony from his friend Toby, who also experienced the incident, the medical report of the VA hospital that he got when his right leg flared up on October 23rd of 2012, and then most importantly of all, an analysis of the apparent implants in his legs. And by the way, later it seems that he also reported having them in his left leg as well, but they didn't catch that because his, at first because his left leg did not flare up. Okay. So you, you say you'd like to investigate these. Can you? No, because none of them are available. Uh, as far as I've been able to learn, Terry hasn't released his uh, Air Force records from 1977, either dealing with the, his medical issues or the OSI case. And I don't really expect, you know, those records to be forthcoming. I, Terry could rightly claim, look, if my story's true, then the Air Force is going to keep the whole thing hush-hush. They're either going to deny people access to the records or doctor them to eliminate key facts. And that's a perfectly legitimate thing. I mean, if the Air Force is knows all this and is covering it up, they're not going to let records confirming substantial parts of his story to get out there. But that also means we don't have Air Force records supporting his story. We also can't talk to his friend Toby, and not only because he used a, a, a code name for him or an alternative name for him for privacy reasons, but also because Terry says that in 2013, after his right leg flared up, he tried to contact Toby and discovered that he had died after being an alcoholic. So Toby is also unavailable to confirm the story. We might be able to look at Air Force records to show that Toby existed, and that would be at least a small bit of confirmation. And we might be able to talk to Toby's wife, who knew at least part of the story. But, you know, Terry used the false name for Toby, meaning that every 
other person in the story other than his wife is somebody we, we can't contact. And, you know, Terry, once again, he could rightly say, look, I, I don't want people pestering Toby's widow. She's since remarried. I don't want a bunch of, you know, UFO researchers who don't always have the greatest social skills in their enthusiasm for their subject. I don't want them pestering her about this painful event from her past. And that's reasonable. But it also, once again, means we don't have confirmation. When it comes to the 2012 medical report from when his right leg flared up, the situation is just as frustrating. He writes, In March 2013, I went back online to take a second look at my medical records. I was surprised to discover the radiologist's report from October 25, 2012, was gone. In its place was a second report by a different radiologist dated November 7, 2012. The second report made no mention of the artifacts below my knee or the piece of metal above it. None of it was mentioned in this second report. Instead, this report simply identified the Baker cyst and nothing more. The November 7, 2012 report failed to state that it was an amended or supplemental report, so there was nothing to show a prior report ever existed. So, by Terry's own account, the original medical report has been mysteriously deleted and replaced by a new one that fails to mention the implants. What about the implants themselves? We don't have them because Terry says that after he started thinking about writing the book, the alien-human hybrid woman that he met visited him again and told him that her hosts would not permit the implants to be scientifically examined. Uh, she said that if he persisted in his plans to write the book, the implants would be removed to deprive his story of support. And Terry says they were removed. On November 16th of 2017, he woke up with pain in and bruises on both of his legs, and a subsequent x-ray showed that the metal implant above his knee had been removed. So then we're left with nothing. Not quite nothing. Uh, Terry indicates that the later x-ray showed that the aliens had left a couple of wires from the implant that they failed to remove. Also, the flower-like bone discs in his calf are supposed to still be there. And we have the original x-rays and the follow-up ones, which are printed in his book. However, in the age of Photoshop, images can be faked. And neither the bone-like structures nor the wires have been removed and subjected to scientific investigation. So what we have is, as Sherlock Holmes might say, the case of the missing evidence, with the few remaining claim scraps of evidence still unavailable to us. None of that provides a, you know, solid evidence for a story as dramatic as the one that Terry tells. So if you're, you know, already convinced of the kind of UFO narrative that he relates, you may find this persuasive. You know, there are reasonable explanations for why the evidence isn't there. But if you're not already convinced, then none of this is particularly compelling. What about the idea that some of what Terry says is true, but not all of it? Well, in a situation like this, we shouldn't apply an all or nothing standard. It could be true that some of what Terry says is right, but that parts of it are things he you know, for example, imagined or misunderstood. Looking at his story from that perspective, I would eliminate two particular parts of it. First, I would eliminate the childhood encounters, which easily could be due to childhood imagination and misperception or adult misremembering of events. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought I saw spooky things in my room at night in the dark, too. Right. Second, uh, I would eliminate uh, everything he claimed to remem remember as a result of hypnosis or dreams, because neither one of those is reliable in terms of memory. That would still leave us with him seeing something strange in the sky at Devil's Den State Park and possibly the terrifying experience that occurred after the two woke up. The problem is that we don't have any of the evidence we would want to ground that encounter in reality. We don't have medical reports, we can't interview Toby or his wife, and we don't have an analysis of the material from Terry's leg. So once again, we've got a situation of, well, if you already believe, you'll believe, but if you don't already believe, this isn't particularly convincing. And then what about the idea that Terry's story is fundamentally not accurate? Here we'd be faced with the question of, where he, of whether Terry is innocently mistaken about all this or whether he's a deliberate hoaxer. 
in favor of the innocently mistaken hypothesis, we can point out a number of things. Some of his story, as we said, you know, is based on childhood memories that could involve misperception or misinterpretation or misremembering. Some parts are based on dreams. So if you think your dreams, you know, you have a dream about something and you think it's a memory. OK, that's a way you could innocently think this happened. And then other parts are, you know, could be things that he confabulated under hypnosis and assumed were true, which is one of the things we talked about in our episode on hypnosis, that it gives people permission to imagine things and then be told that what you're imagining is actually a real memory. So, you know, there are explanations for those things. And even if he uh, had, you know, physical symptoms after the Devil's Den incident, that could have been due to natural causes. Uh, Terry reports that when he was released from the Air Force Clinic back in 1977, a doctor told him, Keep your nose clean and your mouth shut and everything will be okay. Just stay out of trouble and you have nothing to worry about. Tobias told us you guys were drinking out there. The burns that you two suffered were from exposure to the sun and from naturally occurring radiation in the limestone bluff. You guys laid right on top of a uranium deposit, probably with your shirts off. Now the world doesn't need to know that. The red spots were chigger bites from lying in the grass and not using enough DEET. Understand, Sergeant? And there are uranium deposits in Arkansas, as there are in many states. A search for these really got underway in the 1950s when the U.S. government enlisted the American population in finding new uranium sources to help it further its atomic bomb program during the Cold War. So there could be natural explanations for the symptoms that they reported. If there are possible explanations for Terry being innocently mistaken, are there any particular reasons to suspect him of hoaxing? I can think of two potential reasons that someone might propose. First, his story fits extremely well with the common narrative that's found in UFO literature. If he was just innocently mistaken and getting this from bad memory and misperception and dreams, we wouldn't expect it to fit so that narrative so closely. In particular, we wouldn't expect his 1977 experience of hypnosis to have produced this exact scenario, since the overall narrative he describes didn't emerge into public consciousness until the late 80s or 1990s. I mean, after that, you had all these abduction stories and you got the, you know, the insect-like aliens and the gray aliens and the hybrids and everything. After the 80s or 90s, you would expect that, but not in 1977. Second, we wouldn't expect to see the case of the missing evidence in the way we do. Uh, Terry might want to keep Toby's name secret to protect his widow from intrusive UFO buffs, but we wouldn't expect the Air Force records to be unavailable. In particular, we wouldn't expect the October 2012 medical record of his leg problem to have been replaced the next month with another report. Neither would we expect his 2012 x-rays to show a metal object that isn't in his 2017 x-rays. Those disappearances of the of the medical records and the shift and everything and what object is in there, it suggests deception on somebody's part. You could say, well, it's the government doing the deception. Fair enough. You could also say it's Terry doing the deception. That would be fair as well. So it's up to you to decide what you think on that. And so, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this, uh, the Devil's Den UFO incident? As someone from Arkansas who grew up near Devil's Den and who's been there many times, I'd love for this to be a compelling UFO encounter that is supported by good evidence. But it's not. The story that Terry Lovelace tells has multiple instances where the expected evidence is either missing or could be fake. And the evidence he claims still exists has not been retrieved and examined. So however interesting the story may be, it isn't backed up the way it needs to be to count as highly credible, in my opinion. All right. So, Jimmy, what are the further resources that listeners can check out to find out more? Obviously, uh, Terry Lovelace's book, Incident at Devil's Den, you can get that and you can look at the, the, the pictures of the x-rays. Also, it has drawings of the craft that Terry saw. Uh, we'll have a link to that. We'll also have a link to Devil's Den State Park on Wikipedia, as well as the Devil's Den State Park homepage on the web. We'll have Terry Lovelace's website, 
And another podcast, Astonishing Legends, recently did an interview with Terry Loveless. And those guys, they like to include links on Google Maps to where their stories occur. And they think they may have found the field up on the hill in Devil's Den where this would have taken place. And so they've, they have a, I, I've got a link to the field on Google Maps that they, they proposed. Also, we'll have a link to a geology website run by the Arkansas state government that talks about uranium deposits in the state. And we'll have links to episode 80 of Mysterious World on alien implants and also episode 55 on aliens and religion. All right. Excellent. Uh, so check all those resources out, folks. That'll be really good. Uh, let's move on to talk about uh, some mysterious feedback from listeners. This time uh, we're getting feedback from our recent episode on the Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, the first feedback comes from D. Rob on YouTube, who writes, Jimmy, can you post a list of upcoming episodes? Well, we actually do that. We do it on Facebook, where we have a Mysterious World page. And if, if you check that page and you can, you know, like it, subscribe to it, whatever. Once a month, we put up a post that shows you what the episodes for the upcoming month are going to be. And so uh, you can get that information there and I hope you'll check it out. Yep. We also do that on our SQPN uh, and our Twitter, Mysterious World Twitter account. So you can find it in all those places. Uh, Greg W. on Facebook writes, uh, great podcast. I read Holy Blood, Holy Grail around 1982, 1983, and have to admit, it freaked me out at the time. I struggled with ideas and theories from the book for a few years until finally figuring out what it was. Yeah, I appreciate that. I also read it in the 80s, as I mentioned in the show, and I was a brand new Christian at the time. So it was kind of disorienting for me, too, to be grappling with some of these claims and not having the background and the evidential framework for evaluating them. But I eventually worked through them as well and realized this is a bunch of bunk, especially <laughs> that bathroom Dead Sea Scroll encounter. That was like ridiculous. <laughs> it was. Uh, Sergio A. on Facebook writes, as a catechist, I had a lot of explaining to my students about the errors of Da Vinci Code. You wouldn't believe how many Catholics to this day still think it's true or possible. Yeah, I it's it and not just Catholics, but other people as well, because it's out there in the culture. I over the holidays recently, I published a couple of Kindle books, one of them on did Jesus have a wife? And I mentioned that book in our Holy Blood, Holy Grail episode. I wanted to get it out in time for that episode so people could get this little short Kindle book. And I when I posted it, I had people on Twitter. And of course, Twitter is not the friendliest online environment, if I can put it that way. But I had people on Twitter, some of them just dissing, oh, who would believe such nonsense? And then this, within an hour, there's someone saying, oh, yeah, it could be possible Jesus had a wife. How interesting. You know, it's, see, this is why I, I, I'm trying to help these people. <laughs> right. So, so thank you, everyone, for your feedback. Jimmy, what are our mysterious headlines this week? I have a couple of updates on the Golden State Killer, who we talked about back in episode 38. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, DNA evidence points to a man named Joseph D'Angelo being the Golden State Killer. And he is a former police officer in, up in the broader San Francisco area. So that raised the question in some people's minds of, well, can we get his police reports that he wrote as a policeman and would that shed light on, you know, where he was and what he was doing and things like that? And so those have been obtained and they're in the process of, of at least some of them have been obtained. They're also in the process of being redacted for privacy and they're all going to be released to the public. So you can get a preliminary story on that. And then he was at the time of recording, he was just in court and we're recording this in in late January but he was in court for a hearing to determine whether or not they would begin the pretrial hearings in May of this year. Mm. There had been a request by his public defenders to put it off a year because of the large amount of documents they have to go through. And the judge determined, no, uh, we this because of the age of these crimes and the fact that witnesses are getting older, we need to proceed with all haste on this case. And so he said, no, we're going to start the pretrial hearings in May. And that pleased a lot of the uh, victim groups 
that work that are connected with this. And it also pleased me because I want to see this thing tried. I thought what they might do because he's elderly now and I, I don't think he's ever going to get it back out on the street, uh, no matter how the, the court stuff goes. But sometimes murder trials can you know take 10 years. Mm hmm to prosecute. But apparently they're proceeding expeditiously in this. And so you can also link over to that story on the current status of his case. Folks, one of the things we want to do is to appeal to to you, the listeners, about uh, the, the different shows that we do in, at the end of each episode, especially if you have information or if you have your own theories about them. So if you have theories about the Devil's Den UFO incident, we'd love to hear from it. Let us know online. You can well, I'll give you all the, the information in a second about uh, where you can find us online and where you can share your theories and your insights, uh, and maybe they'll show up in a future Mysterious Feedback. Uh, so, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is our patrons episode for the month of March, and this month the patrons have requested to hear about the Nephilim, the mysterious group that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 and in Numbers chapter 13, and that some people think may be aliens from another planet or alien-human hybrids or something like that. So mm -hmm. this is a intersection of the Bible and UFO literature, and we're going to be telling you what the biblical and archaeological evidence really points to. All right. So, folks, you can contact us and give us uh, any information you'd like to share, your feedback, by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Remember, if you can, please to like the episodes on Jimmy Akins Mysterious World on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter. That helps us get the word out about the uh, episodes and uh, grows the audience for the show. You can also share it on Facebook. Yes, sharing is also it is even more directly uh, helpful. So you can also find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And uh, remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>